podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And now for something completely different, once again. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Real Football Cast. I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we're once again going to do something different this week. Now if you listened before, I think when was the last international break? It must have been, I don't know, November. So long ago now. You'll be aware that we changed the format to kicked in the bin. And with us being in the midst of another international break, it makes perfect sense to do it all over again. Now if you don't know what kicked in the bin is, stay tuned. Joining me tonight, I have two top guests. First up is Matthew, our resident Fulham fan. Now, he loved the first offering of Kicks in the Bin so much, he's found another five pet hates that he wants banished. So, Matthew, it's been a while, but how have you been? Uh, not too bad. I'll, I'll be honest, I struggled coming up with five. I struggled coming up with five more, but I reckon I've got some doozies in there. Okay, running past me in a bit. And also joining me is Matt, the Bolton fan. Now, he made his debut on the show a couple of months ago. So, Matt, it's been a while since we last spoke, but how have you been? I hope you're well. Very well, Dan. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Good to be involved. And I hope you've got your kicked in the bin choices ready and waiting. Yeah, listen, since I got the call, mate, I've been working on these hard and uh, I've got one in reserve just in case. So, yeah, let's go. That's the kind of commitment I like to hear. So, before we do all that, I'll do some social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking to the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Anything show related, send it my way. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the safest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a new game that sees betting turned on its head, with the focus being on the loser. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. Especially as this weekend, there is another prize pool worth... £1,000, something you won't want to miss out on. The odds of winning are great, they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. But before I do, i best explain the format for tonight's show. Actually, I also need to devise some sort of naming system. So we've got Bolton, Matt. If I don't mind, you know, can I call you Sharpie for the next 60 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine, mate. I've been cold worse. Right, excellent. So we've got Matthew and Sharpie, and they're going to be kind enough to offer up their footballing pet hates one by one. They're going to volley towards me the things they hate the most in our beautiful game. After an impassioned rant by them, I'm going to decide whether it gets kicked in the bin. Kind of like a famous BBC show, but much more football-based. OK then, Sharpie, as you're the debutant for this particular format, you can go first. What is the first thing you'd like to see kicked in the bin? Right, I'm absolutely lunging in two-footed with this one. It's right at the top of the list. And it is quite simply goal music. Oh, what a start. Okay. It, it it has to go. It has to stop immediately in all in all forms of football. Right, let me explain. When you're at a ground and you're an away fan, 50,000, 30,000, even 10,000 home fans all screaming yes at the same time is noisy, it's loud, and it's quite intimidating. But the goal music is just the most tin pot thing I think I've ever come across. Um, you know, I... <laughs> I wouldn't mind sometimes if it was like a massive, you know, anthem, but a lot of it is just the worst kind of tune you would imagine. I mean, in the Big Sam days at, at Wanderers, we had, I think, I Feel Good. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it just it just kills the vibe. It, it's it's got to go. It's got to stop. 
Are Bolton still guilty of this practice now? I know you don't get many goals this season, but when they do, I mean, is that still a thing? Because I know it, it was a thing back in the day, but has that been phased out or are they still guilty of that crime? I think they are still quite guilty of it. Like I said, the the, 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 Bolt, the amount of Bolton goals I've seen this season is, is you know, minimal, um, <laughs> especially at home. Um, we actually play Sweet Caroline before the teams <laughs> come out, which is which is even worse yeah. if that is possible. Um but but yeah, I mean even even at Bolton, you know anywhere it's it's got it's got to stop, it's got to go. Okay, then that's a great first uh, case you've made, Matthew. Anything to add to that? A counterpoint, or do you agree? Uh, no, I'm countering this oh, full wow. on. Uh, but can wow. I also point out you you missed you missed the big one there, Sharpie. When we're talking about goal music, am I right in thinking? Didn't you have? Is this the way to Amarillo during the Peter K days? <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> but but, but, <laughs> but crucially. That was before the teams came out. No, which... I could swear it was goal music as well. I could swear it was goal music. Well, the thing was, it was a kind of a play on words because it was, is this the way to Amarillo? And then it was Juf Juf when Juf played for us. Oh, OK. Um, which, yeah, is a little bit cringe. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was, I feel good for a long time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But on the on the general point of goal music, I'm very much um, anti uh, Sharpie's point. I'm very much pro goal music i i can get the sense um you know what you said it, it can it be okay if it's a jet um sorry no, it's a bad if it's a general anthem like i know reading do do the darts music which you no know, should really be um uh, restricted to the darts i think that's something um, <laughs> it should be kept it should be kept there it's unique there yeah but I i've just i've just become recently a big big fan of ice hockey and i don't know whether or not either of you are, but the goal horn as well i don't know if that's something that we can maybe replace um, as something, it's not exactly goal music, but it's something that get, gives it a little bit of boost after a goal. That doesn't. Does <laughs> 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 not after the ball goes into there, having that massive horn go off. It's it's something. But there are a couple of clubs that I think do the goal music quite well. I remember Burnley in their first go round of the Premier League. Um, for some reason, it worked. I can't remember exactly what song it was, but it worked there. I think. A couple of clubs do Chelsea Dagger, which sort of works. But on but yeah, on the whole, I'm very much for the goal. I'm very much for the goal music. I think there are a couple of crowds that sort of need that you know, energising boost after a goal because they're relatively quiet. And that's the perfect way to go about uh, in, uh, injecting some. OK, that's a great counterpoint you make. Obviously, I'm in charge. I'm going to scrap goal music only because I love the sound of a goal klaxon going in. That'd be much better, wouldn't it? A big horn <laughs> just every time there's a goal. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, goal music's very sort of dated concept. It's very sort of nineties, isn't it? I think really we're sort of almost past that era of naff goal music. You don't need to be told when to celebrate. Obviously, that's obvious enough. So Sharpie, I think that's a great start. That's kicked in the bin. Goal music is gone. Right then. Thank God for that. Yeah, good start. Right then, Matthew. Obviously, you've had five before. What is your, I guess, pick one of batch two? What have you got for me? Um, well, this uh, links very well into the fact that this is the international break, and it links with in with that. And you can put this uh, not just on the international football uh, uh, front, but also a club level in European competition. But I would get rid of seedings and rankings, depending on however you wish to word it, because. It is more for international. It is more for international football, but it does get into European football as well. We basically just got into a general loop of it's, and it's something the Nations League tried to get rid of, but 
we basically got a set level of where everyone is. And this is coming from a Welshman who has seen year after year after year um, England being drawn into the easiest possible group. Like, England haven't lost a qualifying game since 2009, but yet haven't done anything on the major tournaments. And that beca- that's because they get put in an easy group with the likes of Montenegro and San Marino and Andorra. And then even the... For some reason, they always seem to fluke their way through with the, the middling countries, as it were. It's always not the big... It's not a big team and not, not a decent team. So I would get rid of that because I think it would just throw a spanner in the works in a good way. I want to see a qualifying group. Not, not just the three in the Nations League or four, depending on what level you're in, but a, a group of six. France, Germany, Italy, England, Holland, Spain. Have two of them... The group of go, death. Exactly. The group of death, exactly. Everyone Radical. loves it at the World Cup when they say, oh, though four very good teams, you, know, you don't know which two are going to go through. Have that in qualifying. And then on a transverse level, you can then have a group of San Marino, Andorra, Gibraltar, Kosovo, not wishing to disrespect any of these countries, but you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then have one of them get to the tournament. I don't think I've got any great... in Kosovo. I think we're all right. <laughs> but then, and then give them the greatest summer of their lives when they get to go to the World Cup. For the first time ever. So get rid of seedings and rankings. Wow, that is a big uh, shout. Sharpie, anything to add to that one? Massive call. Absolutely massive call. Um, I kind of get where you're coming from, and I, and I do agree with it. I think that, you know, the whole seeding system is a bit backwards. Um, you know, it, it was the it was a thing with, with Scotland the other night, you know, where they, they lost to a team that was ranked something like 120 places below them or 120 places in the world but it was kind of like they were trying to have any trying to like an easy get out if that makes sense you know they, they lost the game 3-0 because they got outplayed you know you know that that was the, the be all and end all um when it comes down to like you said the, the group of death although i think that would be a fantastic idea and, and and something really good to watch i don't think fifa uefa whoever would allow it ultimately because they want they want the biggest countries from each region at the world cup um, it's kind of like Wimbledon, you know, Federer isn't going to draw Nadal in the first round because, you know, everyone wants to see a big final or a big semi-final or whatever. Um, so I definitely wouldn't put the top the top six or eight teams in a group. However, I do agree that the whole seeding, ranking, drawing teams could do with a bit of an overhaul, for sure. Yeah, I think there's certainly sort of, I guess, somewhere in the middle there. I think you was right in the sense that, you know, it's almost like Groundhog Day now, the same groups in international football, so on and so forth. And it's just, you know, when does it all end? And I think certainly with the Champions League as well, the protection with seeding in the second round then also sort of nullifies that part of the competition. So I think that for the point that Sharpie makes, that you can't get to the World Cup final, which is obviously the pinnacle of international football, wait four years and you're watching San Marino Gibraltar in the quarterfinal. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not quite what you'd have in mind. So... There is merit to the idea, Matthew, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to keep that one out of the bin. So not a good start on that front. A good idea, but not quite over the threshold of binning. So um, that'll have to come back with a later bid, I imagine. So 1-0 is the score at the moment. Not that it's really competitive, but it's always good to keep track. Sharpie, your second pick. What have you got for me? Right, bit of a wild card. Um, Surely one that will bring up a debate, but um, the, the... There needs to be fewer short corners. Let me explain. Short corners very, very rarely, if at all, come to anything whatsoever. 
And, you know, even if you're a good side, even if you can play your way out of a corner flag or, or whatever, if you're a Man City, Barcelona, if you load the, load the box with the big men and get the ball in there, you have got a perfect opportunity of scoring. Now, how many times do we see poor marking from a corner, set-piece, free-kick, whatever, where someone's just unmarked and a big centre-back or a striker gets a free-header at goal? There is nothing more frustrating, apart from goal music, than a short corner that is taken short, played in and around the box, the big men are up from the back, and it comes to absolutely nothing, and it goes out for a throw. Um, The only time a short corner is acceptable is if you're in the dying minutes of a game and you need to keep the ball in the corner. Interesting. I've never really considered that as something that needs to be scrapped or overhauled, but it's a very salient point you make all the same. Matthew, anything to counter that? Would you agree, disagree? No, I'm flipping 180 from my initial initial argument, and I'm I'm agreeing with Sharpie here. I am absolute. I hate short corners. There's, you know, if you're going to have a short corner, why not just have a throw in? If you're only going to pass it ten yards, the exactly. whole point the whole point of a corner is to put the ball in the box to a big centre half to out or centre forward who out muscles their marker and bangs it past the goalkeeper. It is not for you to. It's it's. I'm sounding very Sam Allardyce here. I understand that. But it's not to have a bunch of five-yard passes to then nutmeg a left-back and drill the ball across to someone to flick in in the near post. Corners are designed to be to be put in, ideally on the, ideally on the, center, on the penalty spot and headed in. They're not designed to go short. So I agree with you here. Get rid of them. Yeah, do you know what? I think you both make a very good case for the binning of short corners. I just don't see the value in them. I think, you know, if you're killing time... In the dying seconds, you want to keep it in the corner, then there's merit. But from an actual, you know, start of a move to score a goal, I mean, when does it ever really work? It's just a waste, isn't it? And it's so frustrating when you have a good attacking move, you get a corner, you think, right, we've got, we've got them pinned, uh, pinned here, and then you just goes to nothing. And the next thing you know, they go up the other end and score. So the less of those, the better. Short corners, they're in the bin. So Sharpie, the 100% success rate is on. Matthew, what have you got for me, pick two? Um, for my pick two, I'm going to bin or get rid of the the players who feel who have the ego of, of, above their station to disrespect the sanctity that is squad numbers. Uh, yes. There are a number of <laughs> yeah. players who, over the years, there is a set formation. You can, I can I can get a bit of tweaking. Like everyone knows the four four two. You know, it's right to let you know, two at right back, three at Three at left back, five and six in the middle, seven on the right wing, 11 on the left wing, eight and four in the middle, nine and ten up front. Everyone knows that. And you can get a bit of variation depending on your formation. So if you're going five at the back, then number four becomes a centre back. If you're going four, three, three, then it's nine, ten and eleven and so on. Everyone gets there's a bit of variation on the four, four, two. But I have come up with an eleven of an eleven of players who over the past, have disrespected the sanctity of squad numbers. I'm going to go through it. Yes. In a 4-2-3-1 a formation. So, in goal, <laughs> Look at this we have, jo- love we have well Joe... Thought through this. this is incredible. Joe Wildsmith wore number two in goal for Sheffield Wednesday. Khalid Boularouz at right back for Chelsea wore number nine. Michael Svensson at Southampton, 11. William Gallas at Arsenal wore 10. John Arnaurisa, it was a brief one, but it was the best one I could find whilst playing left-back or number seven. Zabi Alonso, the great player, Zabi Alonso, all those memories, wore number three at Bayern Munich whilst playing in central midfield. Edgar Davids, when he played for Barnett, who remembers those crazy times? He wore number one. 
Clint Dempsey at Spurs. You'll remember this. You'll remember this. Dan, one number two. So he's going on the he's going on the right wing, effectively. Asamoah at Sunderland. Everyone, no, it was for Ghana, I believe. For Ghana, rather, wearing number three as a striker. On the left wing for Sweden, we have Freddie Lundberg. And last but not least, up top for Swansea City, it's Wilfred Bonny wearing number two. They disrespected the very notion of what squad numbers are meant to be. I get that there's some, you know, some randomness to it, like Ronaldinho wearing number 80 because that was the year he was born. Byzanti Lizarazu wearing 69 because he was born in 1969 and is apparently 1.69 metres tall. I get that sort of, I get that sort of thing. Uh, there was a striker called Romario who went to a club in Saudi Arabia who wanted the number 20 because he said, I'm twice as good as your number 10. I get all that stuff, but there are some things that need to be left alone. And yeah, if you want to wear a weird squad number, then you're out of your position. If you're a right back and the number two is taken 12 and above, that's where the weird numbers go. But don't wear a number that's for another starting position on the pitch. It just defies logic and is disrespectful to the men who and women who went before you. Wow. I think wow. we could just end it there. That is a great shout. I thought, personally, you were going to come at a different angle. And I'll, I'll see um, what I mean in a minute. But Sharpie, can you add anything to that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Even if I wanted to, I don't think I could. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. To be fair, um, I'm 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 a little bit disappointed that Fabinho wearing number three in central midfield didn't make the team. Oh, yeah, fair having shot. said that, having said that, I absolutely agree. And I know some players have like lucky omens, and there, there was a keeper, wasn't there, who used to wear ninety nine. I, I can't remember who it was now, but um, see, ninety nine drive... is fine. Ninety nine is fine if you want a weird number. The twelve and above—that's what they're for. But don't yeah, be, don't be I wearing agree. anything stupid. I agree. So if you join a club and you're a right back, if number three or number two is gone, then it's got to be twelve onwards, like Matthew said. One hundred percent agree with that. Because I thought Matthew, you were going to come in with the angle of just needlessly high squad numbers. When I think it's more of a trait in Italy, isn't it? You get the rogue seventy-seven or eighty-eight, and it's like, well, you can't have that many players in a, a squad. And I thought that would be the angle, but. You've sort of come in from a slightly different way and you've just nailed it. I mean, especially with a lineup of an actual team of people who've desecrated squad numbers. I can't argue with that. That is absolutely excellent. And for that reason, disrespect of squad numbers is kicked in the bin. Well played, sir. So you're off the mark. Sharpie, it's third pick time. What have you got for me? Right. This is one that we speak about a lot as football fans. Um, and it's the topic of celebrating against your former club. Now, let me explain. Yep. There are so many players now who fail, who refuse to celebrate against the club. Now, there are some exceptions where I think that is acceptable. So, for example, when Lampard scored against City, when, when Lampard scored against Chelsea for City, I totally get that. You know, he's their greatest ever player, won 500 appearances, whatever. I, I totally understand all that. You know, if, if Ryan Giggs went to play somewhere else after he left United and, you know, obviously he wouldn't celebrate. But you've got players who spent six months out on loan at a former club. They didn't sign them because it was their, the club's opinion that they weren't good enough to stay there. And they will celebrate. Like, if that was me, I'd, I'd be doing the Adebayor, the 80-yard knee slide. Because, you know, it proves that, that you are good enough. Um, and people need to celebrate. You've just scored a Premier League goal. Um, or a Champions League goal in, in you know on on the biggest stage, and unless you have an absolute 
affinity with that with the previous club. Just celebrate the goal. Now, if you listen to last week's podcast, Ryan Babble was guilty of this, and me and Cole brought this up in conversation. And Matthew, obviously, as a Fulham fan, you'll know full well because he scored against Liverpool and gave it the oh no, I can't celebrate, I can't celebrate. But as Sharpie's just sort of said. He was pretty much sort of just kicked out of Anfield, you know, not really wanted, surplus to requirements. He's not gone down as a club legend, has he? So really, A, should he be celebrating? I know we're getting a little bit off track, but should he be celebrating? And B, what's your take on players not celebrating and give it the, oh, I didn't mean to score. What's your take? It's weird because it sort of goes on a a case-by-case basis. Yeah, there is that, I guess. Like everyone, like everyone knows Frank Lampard, you know, the, the, the one, you know, Frank Lampard against Chelsea, everyone knew he wasn't, you no, know, he was never going to celebrate or, or, you know, you get that he didn't celebrate. Whereas there are some, there are some weird ones. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Um, sorry, you'll have to pause me on this, but there, there, there has to, say Ryan Tunnicliffe, a name no one will know, but Ryan Tunnicliffe moved uh, to Fulham for, from Manchester United in, January 2014. He was a bit part player. I don't know if he even made 10 plus appearances for the for the Manchester United first team. But if he ever scored against Manchester United, I, he came through their academy. He came through the U system. Didn't really get that much to play. I don't even many Man United fans would know would know of him. But would you sort of expect him to to celebrate if he? It, it's a case. It's a weird one. So yeah, I kind of get I kind of get the initial point, but it, I don't think we can just you know. The whole subject of players not celebrating or celebrating against former clubs because it's so subjective and it is so and it varies from player to player depending on what's on what scenario they they a left and b their affinity to the club. Yeah, I think to be honest, although I don't really agree with players not celebrating, it'd be a bit harsh to sort of strike it out because it's it's not really something that's absolute. I think you've made sort of perfect examples of when players shouldn't be celebrating against the form clubs. Frank Lampard, as we sort of just all said. But then again, like Ryan Babble probably should have. And in that case, if that was me, I'd be flicking the Vs and cupping my ear and, you know, giving it all that. But I think, you know, you couldn't... It'd be weird if... ...against Chelsea. And I think, you know, that would be, uh, you know, would cause a muckery, wouldn't it? So I think on the balance of probabilities, I weighed up both cases, the yin and yang. Unfortunately... Can't let that one go in the bin, Sharpie. See, a hundred percent run oh, has come to an end. Over, yeah. That one's hit the post, bounced out agonisingly, and just stayed out. It's, it's gone round the rim in the bin and stayed out the other end. So uh, two for three, Matthew. Chance to level the proceedings now. What's your third pick that you want kicked in the bin? Um, I think I'm just. I think I've literally with that last argument set myself up for a four with Ooh. my next point, which is segregation. And the way the fans are are separated, and again, I I realize this, I, I realize how this is going to go. But for the most part, I don't think football fans should be segregated. I think you hear this argument many many times that the the fact that you're segregated and you're separate sort of adds to the animosity. Whereas if you are amongst you know other fans on. If it's on a non-rivalry day, on a non-rivalry day, let's have it. We recently had the the Birmingham Aston Villa Aston Villa instance, which I think everyone can agree, terrible incident. But the next week, when Birmingham are playing, who's in the Championship? They're not going to like. Uh, let's pick one. Bristol City. There you go. Birmingham versus Bristol City. I don't think there's any need for there to be a segregated home and away 
in that scenario. Everyone loves going on away days and conversing with other fans and having a chat down the pub. So why do we then sort of keep then keep them apart for, for 90 minutes afterwards? Why can't I go and enjoy, uh, enjoy a drink and, and watch the game with in the Premier League, a Newcastle fan or a Wolves fan? or a Manchester United fan, or a Liverpool fan. Why can't I do that? There's no animosity. So why do we need Why do we need to be separated? This is something that Fulham, I'm going to trumpet, trumpet our own horns here, are very much ahead of their time on this. I'll, everyone knows about the quote-unquote neutral end at Craven Cottage, which I think it's a bad rap because it's called the neutral end. If it was just given its proper term, which is the mixed end, or the mixed zone, I think everyone would become a lot more on board with it. Because there are, for those non-rivalry games against Southampton and Newcastle and Sunderland and, Man and the two Manchester clubs and so on and so on, because we don't really have any rivalries because we're too small of a club, but you get the point. Why can't we mix and chat with other fans and, and watch the game? It, it, just, it just seems a bit weird. Rivalry games, fine. You know, when QPR and Brentford and Chelsea come to town, by all means, because for some reason we don't like them. But for every other game let the fans mix together and just have a jolly old time. Interesting shout. Sharpie, anything to add to that one? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to get on board if, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about, about the mixing and I've got a bit of a different angle to this. Um, obviously, when I go as an away fan, I love it when there's so many of you packed in like behind the goal. And, you know, we've all been there. That moment when a goal goes in at a big derby, at a big game, and there's 4,000 of you just crawling over each other. Um, I mean, when we got, when, when we got promotion to league one from league one, a couple of years ago, we were at Port Vale. Um, and I've had a, I've more experienced a couple of moments like this, but David Wheater nods, nods the ball, nods the, the header in at our end. And there's literally just, just, just legs and, and arms, just just everywhere. And although that sounds chaotic, it's one of the best experiences ever. Uh, and I can't imagine a goal going in like that and turning to my side and, and just seeing a home fan sat there, you know, upset or disappointed, obviously, because, because the other team scored. Um, having said that, I totally get what you say about having a chat after the match. And, a, and an interesting point to take from this, any Wolves fans listening, um, Wolves actually got promotion from the championship um, a couple of seasons ago at our ground. So they came to they came to Bolton, played us off the park, no problem. And there was four or five thousand, and then packed in behind the goal. And they were so loud, they were so noisy, it was absolute delirium. And after the game, we obviously all the Wolves fans were streaming out, and we had a nice chat to a couple of them, just saying, you know. Good luck for the good luck for the Premier League. You've absolutely smashed this season, no problem. There was no trouble whatsoever, um, and it was a really nice take to actually have a have a chat to a rival fan without you know hurling abuse at each other. Um, but but yeah, I, I can't imagine celebrating a goal and, and not being with fellow you know fellow supporters. If I'm honest, yeah. But again, but, but well, so long as you don't sort of overdo overdo the celebration, and you know you're not going to get any animosity from that fan. So maybe you know maybe. On a day like that, where Wolves, where, uh, where scratch around, um, Bolton get promoted, Port Vale, I don't think we're really doing anything, uh, shouldn't really have been doing anything at that time. They can join in the celebrate, they can join in the celebrations with, you know, well done, sir, sort of. Well, not, not that gentlemanly, but you get the point. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I know. To be fair, a, a lot of fans, unless it's a rival game, um, a lot. Well, most fans. I've never really come across many fans who, who, are, who are really, you know, who, genuine troublemakers, and they'll always shake your hand after the game and say, "Oh, well played," or "Bad luck," or, or you know, whatever. Uh, and I remember I watched Bolton play in, a, in an FA Cup semi-final against Villa in I think '99 at the old Wembley. Uh, and I was only about, I would, have, I would have been seven or eight at the time. And we lost on penalties. And it was, I think it was the year Di Matteo scored that screamer in the final for Chelsea. Um, and a Villa fan, I was absolutely in tears. I was I was beside myself. I was, only, like I said, only seven or eight. But um, this Villa fan comes up to my mum and dad and says, oh, don't worry, son, you know, you'll be back, no problem. And that really stuck with me, that. It, like, I still remember it to this day that that Villa fan said that. Um but yeah, having said that, when when that goal goes in, you need to be with with your fellow fans, in my opinion. Yeah, do you know what? I think that is the uh, the sort of closing argument, which just paints the picture for me. That say a last minute goal goes in for your team away from home, you know, you can have three thousand, four thousand fans, like you say, and it's limbs everywhere, and you just snatched your point. It's the greatest feeling in the world, and you're with everyone, aren't you? Imagine that same scenario. And everyone's dispersed. You've got, you know, eight fans around you. There's loads in the other end of the ground. There's a few, like, opposite. And it's all, doesn't have that same sort of feeling. And I think if you lose that moment in football, then unfortunately the sort of the atmosphere of going to games takes a sort of a, a downturn. I think Matthew makes a very good case that, you know, why can't fans sit together and have that sort of joviality mixed together? And I think it's kind of a shame that we can't. But I think there are as we saw at St Andrews, still some idiots that would ruin it. And I don't think football's quite ready to make that leap of faith like rugby. So we can't really be pioneers on this show. So unfortunately, I can't um, put segregation in the bin. It's going to have to stay out, unfortunately, Matthew. Yeah, I'll get, I've got two more doozies. Trust me, I'm okay. going to get back. He's warming up. He's warming up nicely. <laughs> um, so pick four. We're flying through him. Sharpie, what have you got for me now? This is a bit of a, a wild card again, um, and it's more of, I don't think you'll disagree with, with what I'm saying, it might just be the way it's kind of portrayed or whatever, um, but this is in air quotes, and the air quotes are, benefit of the doubt, so this is in relation to an offside goal, or an offside no goal, or whatever, when the pundits and the commentators say, well you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt, well there is no such thing as the benefit of the doubt, he's either onside or offside. And this happens so much. For example, the prime example is a cross comes in from the left or the right or whatever, or a long ball, and the the forward or the attacker might be dead straight in line with the last defender, but he might be pointing towards the goal, so his arm is offside. But, of course, you can't score with your arm, so you wouldn't be offside. But the pundits and the commentators say, well, you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. And it really grinds my gears when people say that because he's either onside or he's offside. You know, if he if he's absolutely dead in line, then fair play to the attacker for staying onside. He's onside. There is no benefit of the doubt to be had. Don't know what you guys think. Interesting. Matthew, are you one to give benefit of the doubt in situations such as that? Well, benefit of the doubt is going to go away, isn't it, with, with VAR this and all it. this stuff? This is it. Because benefit of the doubt was for when a linesman, when the when when a linesman or a referee can't be a hundred percent sure. So when a player is again, we we hear this so many times. It's so quick. It's a split second decision. If you know the ball, the ref, the linesman's got to hear the ball being kicked whilst watching down the line. If he can't be a hundred percent sure 
that the man was offside, then that's benefit of you know, benef- you know um, to use a baseball term, tie goes to the runner, benefit of doubt goes to the attacker. So I I sort of you know by default it's going in the bin because that's because we're going to get rid of it when VAR comes in when we can get a you know clear and obvious errors sort you no know, sorted out and got and got rid of. Yes, I guess, but is it not already in the bin because of VAR? Has VAR stolen Sharpie's thunder? So I don't really know whether to kick it in the bin or not because it might. Well, it's still not. Late. It's still not fully. It's still not fully been embraced, isn't it? All these things. There's still various trials going mm, on. And it's not I a world. It's not a worldwide uh, automatic thing. That is. Like, right, I yeah. would not. I would not be surprised if this time next year, FIFA come out and say, "Right, VAR was scrapping it back to the old system," just because it. You know, it's still something that can come back. You know, the benefit to, that it can still come to, back. To be fair, I think it's one of them. It's on the scrappy, ready to go in the bin by default. Um, but it is still around until VAR comes. Do you know what? Then let's get it in the bin. Let's remove that doubt. There's no benefit of doubt here. We're going to bin it because I think you're right. You know, you can't just be sort of going, "Oh well, it was offside, but let's give it anyway," because that sort of fundamentally flaws football because then you know what is the point of an assistant referee and all that so VAR should eradicate those issues but even what we've seen with the trials over the last year or so even that's not perfect because you're still in some cases relying on a subjective decision to be made not just by the man on the pitch but then the man in some office somewhere so you know you're not going to get it right all the time there so I think if we can remove any doubt the game's better for it so let's bin benefit of the doubt good work Sharpie Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right, mate. So, Matthew, one of your doozies hit me. Um, it's football snobs. It's this. <laughs> it's something that I'm sure Sharpie would have been on the receiving end of many oh. years in in the big in the big sand days. These fans who seem to be it's above them to play bad football, sort of thing. That say, oh, I'd never. I'd rather my team get relegated than stay up by playing Route One. Tony Pulis, Sam Allardyce, football oh, sort of thing. This is right up my street. You've been exactly. the nail on the yeah. All those years that that Sharpie would have had to put up with uh, people coming across Sam Allardyce. Yeah, yeah, you got to sixth place, but I'd rather I'd rather be seventh and watch an entertaining side than be somewhat successful and play and play Route One football. I'm not going to get into the whole Sam Allardyce because he did play some good stuff at Cotcher. Kocha, Campo, yada yada. I'm not going to get into that, but it's something that uh, Fulham, as well, being a Fulham fan, I witnessed firsthand last year because we were in a uh, promotion battle with Cardiff City, managed by Neil Warnock, who is very much the epitome and is still is this season the epitome of you no know, quote unquote bad football. I can't remember it was either Shahid Khan or Stevie Kanovic, the then manager, who uh, accused them of playing 19th century football. But at the end of the day, it's and it's something our fans sort of jumped on, as jumped on as well. Are we? You no, know, we're we're better than Cardiff. We should be above them. But at the end of the day, Cardiff won more games than us, got more points than us, and if you're looking at the Premier League table as it is now, are going to get more points than us this season. So fine if you want to say, you know, I prefer to play nice, attractive football. All well and good. But don't be the snob that says, I don't want that style of football at my club. I will hand in I'll hand in my season ticket if we if we ever appoint Tony Pulis sort of thing. By all means have your style of play. But don't just instantly dismiss 
a style of play because you never know it could come back to bite you. Sharpie, it sounds like there's a bit of a kinship between you and Matthew on this one. What's your take yeah. on football snobbery? This is an absolute belter. Open the open the door because football snobbery must go in the bin. Um, if if your team is successful, then great. If your team is successful and plays nice, attractive football, it is an absolute luxury and nothing else. If your team is successful but doesn't play good football, and trust me, I know what it's like because I watched 10 years of it, as Matthew rightly said, then please, please be grateful that your team has found a formula for success. I've had, I had this issue with, 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 with the whole Everton, Big Sam, and I know I'm biased, but last season, you know, did they end up finishing eighth or, or whatever? And then they bring in, they bring in Marco Silva, who, who apparently plays attractive football, even though he's the first manager in Premier League history to, to concede six goals with three different clubs. Um, yeah, if your team is successful, then be, be appreciative of it, but it does not give you the right to play attractive football. Attractive football is a luxury. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think also, you know, attractive football is not just a, uh, you know, a prerequisite for winning matches. Tottenham, I like to think, play attractive football, but we've not won a trophy in 11 years. So I think there's a great case to be sort of pragmatic. And if that means being dirty and not necessarily playing the free-flowing football that you'd like to see, the purists like to see, then so be it. Because ultimately, performances are not as important as points and trophies. And that are what makes a club successful. So, um, so yeah, and for people to go, oh, you know, like, oh, this kind of football's beneath me, or oh, I'm not going to watch our club anymore if we revert to type B, then, well, then don't, just go. Like, we're not, we don't want you in the football fraternity, and I don't want football snobbery anymore, so I'm going to kick it in the bin. A great shout, Matthew, and a good, good input, Sharpie, as well. I think a good tag team effort there. So, we're down to our final and fifth picks. So, Sharpie, what have you got for me? Got a couple others lined up, but I'm going to pick the best one that I I feel strongly about. He's going it's strong. A, it, it, yeah, finishing strong. It's a little bit, it could be perceived as a little bit political, but I think everyone kind of agrees with it. It's players receiving a booking for taking their shirt off. Now, I kind of understand why people get a booking when they run into the crowd. I don't agree with it, but I accept it. Because obviously it's safety and it can cause a riot or whatever. I totally get all that. Um, but what harm is is a player doing by removing his shirt? I know we're in a, we're in an age where everyone's offended by something, but why 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 must he receive? Why must he be punished for taking his shirt off? Um, you know, unless he obviously re- reveals a massive swastika or, or or whatever, which should obviously be inappropriate, but. But a lot of the time, you know, you see these players, they, they take their shirt off and they have something written on a vest or a T-shirt and it might be something to do with the family or a new baby or whatever. Um, and, and the guy gets a booking for it. Um, there was a case a couple of months ago, I, I can't remember I can't remember what it was, it, it was a high-profile player and he took his shirt off and um, the ref actually apologised for booking him. Oh, it's post-Miliano uh, Sala, wasn't it? It's Cardiff player. That's like, the one. Oh, I don't want to do this, but I have to. And it's, he just felt really yeah. awkward, didn't he? Like, oh, sorry. Like. It was, yeah, it, it was really uncomfortable. And the ref, you could physically see the ref saying, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I have to book you kind of thing. Otherwise, I get in trouble. And I, and I understand that the refs have to do it. Otherwise, they'll be marked down and, you know, they have assessors and all that kind of stuff. And it's on a points basis. I get all that. But but I, th- I think that should be relaxed a little bit. Let, let people celebrate a goal, for God's sake. 
Matthew, what's your take on players getting booked for taking their shirts off? Um, I, I'm sort of, I sort of get, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from, but it's basically a matter of principle and not wanting to set a precedent. You mentioned, you know, if a player takes a shirt and there's and there's a swastika underneath, absolutely, we need to, but it's put in place to stop that, and they don't want to be in a case of right, we can allow this, but we can't allow this you've got to draw you've got to draw the line somewhere and they've just basically drawn the line right at the start because if you allow one person to send a message to have a message under their thing it's it's, again it's a subjective thing you know i believe this message it's it's a nice message but someone else may perceive it not as a nice message you know if so they've had they have to draw the line instantly i know where you're coming from i'm absolutely on i'm on your side but at the same time, I know why they have to do it. It's so they, it's to stop. They, it basically just puts an end to any potential, um, any potential incidents arising in the future. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. to be honest, Matthew's right in the sense that if you relax that rule, you are opening Pandora's box because then you can't really control the message under the shirts. Because at the moment, you know, everything's like just. Nothing's really going to bad going to happen. If not, you get punished. No one's going to be that stupid to, you know, have a silly message under their shirt. Unfortunately, if you then sort of were lenient, then people would test the waters. Been well, can I get away with this message and can I get away with that? And then God knows what might happen. So I think because it, again the subjective nature, it's very hard to sort of say it's all got to go in the bin because there's certain cases where it shouldn't and so on and so forth. Similar to the not celebrating rule, it's very hard to sort of just pinpoint all of it when some of it you know, probably could get away with it. So unfortunately, you make a good case, but I don't think I can allow players getting booked for taking off their shirts to be kicked in the bin. So that one's bounced out, unfortunately. Fair so, enough. So Matthew, what have you got for me as your fifth and final pick? Right, I want to preface this by saying no, in relation don't. to what in what I said with my last thing, this is not a case this is not a case of snobbery. This has got nothing to do with style of play or the person's achievements, or anything like that. This has nothing to do with that. This is purely on based on one issue. Okay. And I would kick Pep Guardiola in the bin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> because I am firmly again. I'm not this. I'm not saying he's overrated. I, 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 I'd be the one person on earth to say I'm not saying that. But I really, really, really have an issue with this idea that he's God's greatest gift to management. And there is one vital. Thing that he is guilty of and no one ever seems to call him up on it if he's meant to be the best coach in the world which he, if, if arguably he is i don't want to get into that if he's arguably the best coach in the world then surely it is his job to coach players up to be the best players they can be for instance joe hart if you believe pep guardiola you are the best coach in the world then it should be on you or your coaching staff who you have taught in your way, to teach Joe Hart to play better with the ball at his feet and to be better with his distribution. Not just say, oh, he's no good, ship him off, then get Claudio Bravo, buy him, realise he's terrible, ship him off, and then buy Ederson. Manchester City have a great academy because they've got so they've got all the luxuries they can attract the players. But why does he feel the need to buy Riyad Mahrez for 70 plus million or whatever it was, rather than go to the academy and use someone like Jaden Sancho or Patrick Roberts, who you have at your disposal for nothing? 
Why do you feel the need to spend all that money? If you're the best coach in the world, put them into that position. I'm going to prefer, you know, counter this with Arsene Wenger. I know it's dangerous talking to a Spurs fan about this, but you look at what he did. All the bargains that he managed to get with his scouting and then made them into what... Thierry Henry was pre predominantly a left winger. He turned him into arguably the greatest centre-forward or best striker the Premier League has ever seen. He's you know, Nicolas Anelka was, I think, half a million. And then within a season, Real Madrid wanted him for 20, time, 20 times more that. Because Arsene Wenger coached him up to that level. Alex Ferguson with the class of 92. There was some talent there. But he made Paul Scholes, you know, arguably the greatest central fielder that England has ever seen. Ryan Giggs, the best left winger the British Isles has ever seen. Uh, Gary Neville, arguably the best right back the British Isles has ever seen. You, if you're meant to be the best coach in the world, then coach the players up. Don't feel the need that you that you're basically you know, hand tied behind your back and you have to spend money on someone. So that is my argument. Pep Guardiola, if you're the best coach, prove it. Don't just get your checkbook out. Right. Okay. So let's get this straight. Yeah. It's not necessarily Pep Guardiola. It's Pep Guardiola's coaching ability. Is that what you want in the bin? Coaching ability and lack of use of youth, yes. Right, okay, that's... Okay, right, now I know the parameters. Sharpie, what would you like to add to that one? Um, I was about to kind of disagree massively, and I still do a little bit. Um, I think Matthew makes an excellent point about youth. Um, the whole Sancho thing has been a disaster for Pep. Um, it, you know... I mean, look at him now. He's one of the most exciting wingers in in Europe, arguably the world. Um, how 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 he slipped through through their grasp, you never know. Look, players don't often work out at at, at certain clubs, and and that's that's kind of fine. But the whole Sancho thing has been a disaster for Pep. Um, there's a lot of pressure on him with Foden. Um, I think most people from the outside looking in and, and obviously I, I have a good friend Paul who, who's a who's a City fan who I know you know Dan yeah, um, spitting out his cornflakes when he listens to this one yeah <laughs> <laughs> he'll be foaming at the mouth um, I, I, I think he was I think everyone expected him to get more game time I think the whole coaching thing is overlooked because Pep spends big money and to be fair to him he never fancied Joe Hart and he was clear on that from the get-go. He never fancied him. And I don't think he had a genuine run in the team um, for Pep, hence why he bought Cla Claudio Bravo in. But if you look at the people who he has improved, Raheem Sterling is a prime example. Now, when City bought him, people were kind of laughing at that. They bought him for £50 million, What was he, 1920 at the time? And in the, the, the season, last season, sorry, when City won the league, prior to that season starting, a lot of people were saying that Sterling would do well to get in that side. And Pep has turned him to an absolute monster. Um, he's England, arguably England's most important player. I think if he doesn't get player of the season, it's an absolute sham. Um, you look at other players like Bernardo Silva, Otamendi, uh, even Aguero, um, all these players, he has genuinely improved. And I think the only reason it's overlooked that he that he hasn't, or he has, or he hasn't, or it's up for a debate that he has, or he hasn't improved them, is because he spends big money on them. I think when you get a homegrown talent and they turn into a world beater, everyone appreciates that more because they're one of their own or whatever. Um, but I, I think 
I, I think he is a good coach. I, I think, yes, he, he can do a lot more with youth. And I think City, at the moment, need to be showing a bit more kind of a precedent to bring bring younger players through. You know, like like there's a there's an incredible statistic for United. Haven't they had an academy player in their squad every match for the last hour, God knows how many years or, or whatever? Um, but yeah, I, I think he's a I think he's a very good coach and proofs in the pudding with with Sterling and, and Silver and, and the people I just mentioned. Hang on, hang on. But there are guys that Sterling Sterling wasn't a complete bum when when he signed it. Raheem Sterling, that season under Brendan Rodgers, was pretty good. It wasn't as if he was some nobody. And you mentioned the likes of Sergio Aguero. Sergio Aguero didn't need improving. Sergio Aguero is arguably, before Pep Guardiola came in, the best striker this side of the year 2010. Except Sergio Aguero didn't need improving. D- David Silva has always been a great player. Bernardo Silva is a great player. No, there's no. I don't think... Everyone's treated like he's made them, you know, from fifty percent of what they are to one hundred percent what they are. They were already about ninety percent the way there. He's just done the last ten percent, rather than, you know, as I made comparison, someone taking him from what they were with the likes of Omri and Beckham and Giggs and Skulls and all that lot to where they are now. Pep Guardiola basically just finished the job rather than doing it from scratch. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, with, Chuck, with, please continue. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. With Aguero, you make a good point. He, he was already obviously a world class player, but he has made him better. I think you know that's you know that that's a fact. He, he has made him better, and and the whole thing with Sterling, when City signed him, he he got dogs abuse from from City fans, from the media. I know obviously Raheem Sterling, the media was a separate issue, but um, the the things were that he couldn't finish. He didn't get involved in as many goals as he should, and he had zero end product. When City signed him, he was raw, he was quick, and he was exciting, but that was it. He wasn't scoring that many goals for Liverpool. I think he got 10, maybe 15 tops in the season where they almost won the league, obviously the the season prior to him leaving. But you're talking about a player now that's gone from being on the fringes of the team, which he was when Pep came in, to being their most important player, and two seasons in a row, he'll end up scoring 25 goals. I and guess, that is genuine improvement. Sorry, I guess really the problem here is that Guardiola has managed elite clubs. And when you manage elite clubs, you work with elite players. So like Matthew says, there's not much more left to sort of coach out of them. You know, you're not working with Wrexham and turning in a team of also-rounds superstars. You know what I mean? Like You can't really see the the tangible sort of difference as easily. And that's where it's sort of difficult to sort of decide... If Pepsi's a great coach or not, because say for example, Matthew, if we go by your logic, Barcelona, for example, they won two Champions Leagues under Pep. Did he make those players better, or was it the fact that the academy was such a powerhouse, a conveyor belt of talent, that all he had to do was pick eleven names and let them do the work themselves? Um, I'm I'm not all that versed in La Liga. I you know, I'd have to do some research into the argument, but yeah, I, I'm sort of of that view that that eleven was basically picked by who was it before? it was frank reichard frank reichard before him was that's it? right yep the basic and then he just put on put on the finish finishing touches and even if you go to like you know by munich it did he did the same thing there wasn't a player there that he made better there was i think i think i made the i i wrote i did an article about this about two years ago but for the life of me i can't find it where i just i could only really find four players where you could make an argument Pep Guardiola bought for a little bit of money, you know, a, a bargain signing, and made them great. I think the only one I could find was Javi Martinez and Gerard Piquet, 
was the one that Pep himself made better. Everyone else was sort of, again, like I said, coached up before him, and he just did the finishing touches. Yeah, I think another another thing you could throw into that is the whole De Bruyne thing. And I know he's been injured this season quite a bit, but I think when City signed him, what is kind of 50-odd million from, was it was it Schal- Wolfsburg, Schalke? That's right, Wolfsburg. Um, and this is a guy that couldn't get in the Chelsea team. Um, and people were kind of, I know he was a youngster back then, but people were kind of saying, 50 million for, for this guy. I mean, come on. Um, and the, Obviously, like I said, this season he's he's been a bit inconsistent with with his injuries, but but last season he was he was an absolute dream. You know, he he was incredible, and I, I suppose like like I said originally, I th- I think when you spend so much money on a player, you know, fifty million is is obviously changed now for City, but when you spend that kind of money on a player, I think as a fan, even from a neutral point of view, you're expecting them to to kind of run with it from the get-go but that's not often the case um the same thing with Sterling and, and De Bruyne and, and that and and I, I genuinely think he, he has made players better but I think it's overlooked because of the money he's spent right okay it's decision time I think you make a very good case Matthew I can see why you would have suggested what you did but I think Sharpie has also painted Guardiola in a good light in the fact that he does spend a lot of money whether that's a criticism then you can't really, I guess, blame him because, again, managing elite clubs gives him the chance to spend money. It's not his fault, so to speak. But, you know, calling him a checkbook manager is not the most outrageous insult either. But I do feel that he has made players better. I think Raheem Sterling, I know he was good at Liverpool, but I feel sort of certainly even these last few months, he's really hitting his best um, career heights. And I think he's going to get even better. You know, if you look at the last two England performances, I know it's not the greatest sort of sample, but... He looks like the kind of player that can kick on and really be, you know, world class. So I think, Matthew, as strong a case as it was, and I can see merit for it, unfortunately, I can't put Pep Guardiola's coaching ability in the bin. Sorry, mate. Right then, he's not even happy with that one. <laughs> he's gone quiet. <laughs> Matthew, you still there, mate? Oh, sorry, sorry, I muted it. I muted the wrong time. I'm That's saying, all right, oh. don't worry, don't worry. I, thought, I thought you'd gone off in a huff. <laughs> no, no, sorry. So I'll, I'll, I'll make my point again. Uh, don't right. worry, I'm used to... Sorry. Don't worry, I'm used to being in the minority on a subject like this. And like most great people, I will not be appreciated until after my time. Oh, there so we go. The, the yeah. time will come eventually. Right, OK. You'll be the, uh, the person saying, I told you so, when he takes the City down to the Championship. Is that what you're saying? Yes, well, not City down to the Championship, but when all this all comes out and he eventually um, doesn't win anything with the club after, uh, maybe drops down to someone like Everton and doesn't win anything, then I'll be proved right. Right, then you can proclaim that you were right all along. Okay. Remember this comment. Yes, okay, well, let's let's put an asterisk next to Pep Guardiola's coaching ability. It's not in the bin yet, but Matthew, you've got like a few years for it to finally fall in. Is that a fair compromise? Yes, I'll, yeah, I'll have that compromise, right. absolutely. Okay, that's uh, that just sort of smooths things over before we finish. And with that, five picks each. The scores are not competitive, competitive should I say, but um, it is three to Sharpie, two to Matthew, but I like to feel you sort of work together. So you've got um, five out of ten in the bin together. So good work, chaps. I hope you enjoyed proceeding. Sharpie, thanks ever so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem, mate. Really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. I hope like, you'd like to spend some time with me talking some real football sometime soon. 
Yeah, some real football would be nice, yeah. Okay, mate, we'll uh, try and get something in before the end of the season. If not, there's plenty of weeks next time around from August onwards. And Matthew, the same to you, mate. Yeah, absolute, as, absolute pleasure to be on, Sharpie. Absolute pleasure to be, quote-unquote, meeting you. You seem like a genuinely nice guy. And I know Bolton are going through some struggles, but you will come out glorious on the other side. Trust me, things will get better. Likewise, Matthew, I appreciate that. Thank you. There you go. There's that loving. I better end it now before it gets a little bit too amorous. So on that bombshell, (laughs) it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.